And I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. That's the opening statement of the 122nd Psalm, and how glad and how thankful we each can be today, as was mentioned by Brother Gary in our announcements earlier. It's always exciting to come together, the opportunity that you and I have to worship the only God that there is. As we come together for this part of our worship today, we're going to study about a lesson, as you can see on the wall, that has as its title, God's Anger at Sin. This particular lesson, I hope, will be a powerful reminder to each of us. We'll be using a number of scriptures, a number of references from the Holy Word of God, all of which will be designed to give us an impression, a very strong and vivid one at that, about the nature of how God looks upon sin. These opening remarks, I believe, will begin to move us in the correct direction. You and I, as we think about the attributes of God, so many leap off the consideration of our mind. We think about His mercy and we consider His graciousness. We often think about the provision, how much every day we depend on Him. Didn't Jesus pray, give us this day our daily bread in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. But yet if we only think about those attributes of God, maybe we'd be quick to forget about His anger. Are there ever scenes and instances in the Word of God in which God became angry? If so, what were those scenes? For surely, you and I would never want to do what would make God angry at us. We should never want to kindle His wrath in our direction. In Psalm 21, verse number 9, there we find a reference and a very beautiful one at that on the one hand because it reminds us that God does pour out His wrath like being in a fiery oven. Consider what that would be like. Surely, as you and I think about anger, we'd be quick to say that for you and me, it's not a sin by itself to be angry. Didn't Paul write in Ephesians 4.26, Be ye angry and sin not. In fact, to be angry is in fact, I suppose, a reasonable thing, for it means you're passionate about something. It means there's something so serious and so important that you're willing to be animated about it. The challenge comes, we must never let that anger lead us to say what we shouldn't, to do what we shouldn't, to have thoughts that would be improper. Be angry, Paul wrote, and sin not. Our study today is not so much about your anger and mine, but about God's. And so as we close that slide, let's begin to study some features and characteristics about God's anger. As we do that, let's first illustrate very clearly what it is time and again that we shall find that animated God to anger. Let's characterize sin. Here's a slide that would lead us to appreciate, just as surely as the Bible presents it, sin is serious business. You'll notice near the top of that slide, God, throughout all the characteristics of the ages past, has presented to every human being laws and statutes and ordinances which He demanded that they keep. Now it is true that He has shared those laws and ordinances, at least in ages past, in a variety of ways. He spoke through the fathers to people like Noah and Adam and Abraham. But then the time came that He brought the law of Moses in which that law now was written, if you please, and it was of course presented to the children of Israel. But God demanded that they keep it. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40, 
we read there especially that the ordinances and statutes and laws which God commanded us to keep, that again was the children of Israel. And yet as you and I come to our life today, we don't live beneath the law of Moses nor the patriarchal age either. We live beneath the law of Christ. Paul especially referred to that in 1 Corinthians 9.21. He said, we are under law to Christ. May you and I thus never forget that there is religious law today and you and I are beneath it, the law of Christ. Perhaps it is in light of that that brings us to the next definition. And may I suggest that this is one which in many cases the human family would prefer not to consider. If you ask the general person today, what is sin? I suppose if you took a poll of a thousand people, you would have a wide variety of answers, and some would not even be close to the biblical definition. Sin is not merely anything defined by me or by you. Sin is not merely an implication or a movement that is inappropriate to me or you. It's not simply anything to do with my preferences or yours. 1 John 3, 4 defines sin for us like this. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Any time, under any circumstance, for any reason, that there's a violation of God's law, sin has been committed. Now that definition is very rigid, and quite frankly, it's uncompromisable, at least biblically. Because of that, you'll notice what that then suggests. That means that the old devil, that wily serpent, he can prey upon and play upon your lusts and mine. And if he can ever get us to do anything that transgresses any law of God for us today, we've become guilty of sin. No wonder in James 1 verses 13 to 15, this, this scenario is presented like this. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That trio of verses, verses 13 to 15 in James chapter 1, identifies this application to your lusts and mine. Let's be quick to say. The devil knows it well. Sometimes those things that appeal to the flesh can bring a momentary sense of pleasure. Wasn't it true in Hebrews 11.25? Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Sin may have a momentary pleasure for the flesh, but surely we understand the eternal danger that goes with it as we give more thought to God's anger, let's be quick to notice, despite how the devil may portray it, sin is shameful. It's pathetic. Sin is disgraceful. I realize so often the world can make it look so enticing, that scantily clad female. Oh, the world just gets enamored with it. Sin's involved. That circumstance in which a number, a number of other matters, whatever it is they may do to play to the matters of the flesh. How well did Jeremiah point that out to us in Jeremiah 3.25? 
early in that book of Jeremiah, as God spoke through the great prophet of old, he said, We lie down in our shame, and our, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth, even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Confusion. Patheticness. Surely, in light of all those things, you'll notice what the typical tendency, I suppose, for the human family is. Given what we've described so far about sin, and there's much more yet to come, the tendency in the human family is to overlook it, to neglect it, to sweep it under the rug, to pretend that it really isn't all that bad. Look at some of these verses. In Proverbs 14, verse 9, the inspired writer said, Fools make a mock at sin. That person who doesn't look upon it seriously, the individual who perhaps looks at it as trivial, God says that man's a fool. Sin's serious business. You'll notice in Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 and following, God gave a warning to the ancient people of Israel. Now remember, this was the old law of Moses. He said, Beware lest you forget. God and His commandments. Surely over the passage of time, once the children of Israel came into the land of Canaan and they enjoyed the beauty of that land and all the provision of it, it'd be easy to get spiritually lazy. God says, don't you forget. Because if you transgress any of these, you will become guilty of sin. In Psalm 78, verses 7 and following, centuries later, but David again wrote, how sad it is and how tragic it is to forget any of God's commandments. Those that do so again have made themselves foolish. Maybe two final ones. And they speak volumes. In Lamentations 1 verse number 12, in that little five-chapter major prophet of the Old Testament, you remember on that occasion that God's people had already chosen those ways that were rebellious to God. And because of that, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar had come and Jerusalem had been destroyed. On this occasion, Jeremiah's perched on the, the hillside overlooking the destroyed city as one by one the people are hauled off to Babylon. Here's what he said. Lamentations 1 verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? Doesn't that verse send practical chills up your spine? Here was a people who in fact were now being hauled off to captivity because of their sin and iniquity. And God through Jeremiah said, Is it nothing to you? Don't you care? Look at what your actions have done. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 8 verse 17, we notice an even more noteworthy question. This time, it was addressed again by God through Ezekiel to these people who had now had already been taken to Babylon. They were already taken far from their homeland. Verse 17 says, Is it a light thing to you, all you who commit abomination? And therein lies our question for the morning. Is it a light thing to commit sin? Is it serious? Does it matter? Is it a weighty thing? Is it a light thing, all you who commit abomination? I wonder how the people in Ezekiel's day could answer. Here they were. It's easy to see what had happened. Their beloved temple had been destroyed. They'd been hauled off as prisoners and captives. 
Is it a light thing? How serious now do you think it is? As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, you'll notice two final thoughts. The sadness of our description so far isn't just a matter for the ancient day. It also can be very powerful and pertinent today. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the very heart of the New Testament. Wasn't it true as Paul addressed the church in Rome? Notice the church in Rome. There were some who made this argument. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Here were individuals who had the nerve to say, well, let's just sin a little bit more. Won't that mean there'll be a little bit more grace from God? And Paul had to quickly say, if I may say it this way, you have to be kidding. God forbid. That never entered the mind of God. As you and I then think about this problem today, when sometimes we overlook sin, sometimes we're so tempted to neglect it or play it as if it's unimportant. As we close that slide... There are some descriptions I think would be appropriate as you and I use them to help us appreciate not only the danger of our day, but the sad situation in which Israel found herself. In Isaiah 30, verse number 1, listen to this little description. They are rebellious children who add sin to sin. It's not as if one sin was enough. They had to heap another one on top of it. Or look at Jeremiah 51, verse 5. The whole land, God said, is full of sin. In Zephaniah 3, verse number 7. Again, a very graphic passage. They rose up early to corrupt all their doings. You may notice there, they set their alarm clock a little bit earlier just to see how much sin they could commit before dinner. Isn't that remarkable? The land was full of sin. Maybe one final one in Micah chapter 7. In verses 3 and 4 of that passage, we notice one more time how that they are like a briar. But what's more, as the sin was so rampant, we appreciate just what God said it would bring to them. One by one, we've looked at a host of passages that remind us these are things for which God does become very animated. Let's develop that in some detail then, perhaps like this. May I say to you, in light of those verses you and I just now read, is it a light thing, all you that pass by? Is it a light thing to you who commit abomination? The children of Israel on so many occasions chose to look upon sin as if it really wasn't that serious an issue. Let's use this slide, however, to consider not only their lot, but our own. I suppose ever since the Garden of Eden, it has been a strong temptation to think upon sin as just not so bad. It's just a minor thing. I'll get past it and go on. You'll notice in Ezekiel 8 verse number 12, the inspired prophet on that occasion again to that people in captivity directly told them, even though they thought God doesn't see us, he said God does see you. He knows exactly what you're doing, where you've been, what you're thinking, and what you said. He knows all of it, and if it transgresses His will, it is a sin. Surely in that point, then look with me like this. God's ways are so high, 
And He has set before us in His laws and in His will how He demands that you and I live our lives. How we conduct ourselves. How we behave ourselves. The things we do and the things we say and even how we say it. Surely, in light of those things, Hosea chapter 9, verse 9 says it like this. He remembers their iniquity and He visits their sin. God's memory is perfect. It's not as if He overlooks it or neglects it. It has to be dealt with. Case in point. Look at the abomination that comes with sin. Look at in the Old Testament what it is that happened when God became angry. God's anger at sin. I've only selected a few examples. As, as you study, you probably could add many, many more. But I'm going to selectively choose these. And I would invite us, perhaps in the eye of our mind, to reflect on those developments and ask, how did God react? First of all, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 23, there is a reference to the wrath of the Lord. What was the object of it? Moses is very clear. Moses makes reference to, do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboam when the wrath of the Lord was poured forth? So what was it then that kindled God's wrath? What was it then that led him to such excited anger? Well, you notice what it was. It was the behavior in Sodom and Gomorrah. This pair of cities, and again, those others in the plain that were nearby, they chose to behave themselves wholly rebellious to the things of God. They committed sin, including homosexuality, including various others listed in Ezekiel 16. God's anger was kindled. What happened? We each remember that He rained fire and brimstone on those places, and later, even in the days of Moses, He said, those cities still are not in existence. They become nothing but a salt pit. Oh, what God's anger brought about when that wrath brought forth the reality of His actions. Look at another example. In Numbers chapter 11, the scene here is God's own people. God had brought them so majestically out of the land of Egypt, and they had, of course, wandered for a little while throughout that area toward the land of Canaan. But then in Numbers 11, the people began to complain, and they exhibit unthankfulness, and it says the fire of the Lord burned in the uttermost parts of the camp. Fire of the Lord? Here God was so angry at these people and their lack of devotion, their disbelief. Notice what his anger did. Fire burned in the uttermost part of the camp. A lot of them died. In verse 33 of the same chapter, you remember that plague burst out in the camp, killing thousands of them. That was no accidental disease. God brought that plague as a judgment upon them. God was angry at their sin. Perhaps another example. In Numbers chapter 12, verse number 9. Here, it was even the leadership in Israel. Moses and Aaron were the selected gentlemen to be both spokesman and prophet. And yet, we remember on this occasion that Miriam came together with Aaron and they had an idea. Why don't we, in fact, elevate ourselves to be like Moses? God wouldn't have any of that. He brought leprosy on Miriam. Perhaps we could say, God was angry at sin. 
Now that anger that we've seen one by one presented so far takes us to another one. Not many chapters forward from this actually. But you'll notice that in Numbers 25 beginning in verse number 1, Israel had the nerve to in fact directly begin to engage in fornication with the various ladies of the land. Not their own land by the way. God wouldn't have any of that either. 23,000 of them died in one day. Total of 24,000 total. Question, was God angry at sin? Did He allow His anger and wrath to manifest itself with the death of a whole host of the children of Israel? Sure He did. No wonder as you think about God's anger at sin, our disposition towards sin should be able to develop in a way that brings these thoughts before us too. We'll not look at very many more Old Testament examples, but in Numbers 32, 13, may I ask you to consider this one. The text expressly says that because of His anger, God forced the children of Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Have you ever thought about the nature? Here were God's people. Surely in His kindness and goodness, wouldn't He bring them to the land of Canaan in a short period of time? It's hard walking over that kind of treacherous terrain for all those years. The thing is, it was a sentence and God was angry at them. In fact, all of that generation, of course, had to die in the wilderness. In Judges chapter 10 verse 6, for a host of their idolatrous actions, God sent His people into captivity to people like the Canaanites, to others of that land, God allowed them to be hurt, to be oppressed, to be slaughtered and killed. God was angry at sin. Maybe one final observation, the captivity in Babylon. God so much offered His people the opportunity to live rightly. He sent them His prophets. He gave them His laws. He told them in what things they needed to do. And in that way, they could always appreciate the rich blessing of heaven. But they would have none of it. They chose to sin. God said, finally, I've had enough. Despite me sending me my prophets and telling you what you needed to do and urging your repentance, you are stubbornly headed down the same road of disbelief. So I'm going to let you go to, cap to captivity for a while in Babylon. Seventy years it's going to be. You'll notice this particular verse in Jeremiah 12 verse 13 highlights it. It was because God was angry. Those Old Testament examples perhaps whet our appetite for the New Testament. Does God still get angry today? And if so, what prompts it? Let's study for the next few moments at least some pages of the New Testament and see about God's anger. Romans 6 verse 23, probably a very familiar passage. For the wages of sin is death. Now, the wages of sin, the consequences of it, the eventuality of it, he says it's death. Let's use that to consider this. What happened at the cross? If ever there's any image, if ever there's any picture, if ever there is any consideration that should paint an indelible picture in your mind and mind of the enormity of sin, the sadness and the magnitude of it, it should be the cross. Picture it. The only perfect one that ever lived. Literally, 
And not only that, he was the very member of the Godhead. And yet, he was reviled, he was insulted, he was berated, he was so vehemently mistreated, he was mercilessly beaten, nailed to a cross. And there he hanged. And they would walk by and wag their head at him and spit upon him. And as they did that, it was the Son of God that was in that place. And the image ought to be sin is taken care of. Maybe you and I, on occasion, again, picture some sins as so minor. Oh, I misled somebody. I just told a little white lie. I really don't know how that terminology ever got started. No lie is white. White has the idea of purity and cleanness with it. No lies of that character. No sin is a minor thing either. I realize the world may in fact want us to believe that it is. It's okay if I have a beer every now and then. No, it's not. Jesus went to a cross to in fact save my soul and yours. And to partake in sin like that, may it never be. You'll notice furthermore in 1 Peter 2 verses 24 and 25, the description is given there was no guile in his mouth, and yet he bore my sins and yours on the tree. That's the cross. Notice he took our sins there. The Lord didn't go to the cross just for his benefit, for he didn't have any benefit in it. He obtained joy at the thought of our salvation, but the main blessing of it is for you and me. Perhaps it's in light of that that you and I come to appreciate there is a powerful word of vengeance housed in the New Testament for those guilty of sin. Now we know that the utter eventuality of this, of course, points to the day of judgment and the aftermath of that day. But you might notice with me in Romans 12, verses 19 and 20, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. May you and I never forget. He said, I will repay. He didn't say, I might, or I'll think about it. He said, I will. And if you and I choose to live foolishly, making a mock at sin, if we choose to not consider it as serious, we'll be sorely regretful on that final day. Maybe in 1 Peter 4, 17, we notice there, if the judgment of God first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? That's going to be a very frightful day for so many. A day housed with regret. A day housed with eternal sorrow. Look at what comes next. The book of Revelation, perhaps unlike any other, gives us a picture Time and again, John was told, John, what you see, write in a book. And so when you and I read what John wrote, we can see what he saw. John saw the dragon beasts cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. John, what does it mean? It gives us a picture of the wrath of God poured forth upon the disobedient, poured forth on those who have had the nerve to oppose the will of God. That dragon, of course, in chapter 12 is none other than the devil. Finally, he will be cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. Didn't Jesus say that it's the place prepared for the devil and his angels? Matthew 25, 41. Notice that I would ask you to consider in Revelation 19, 20, 
as we get near the very end of the entire Bible, Revelation 19, we see the false prophet. Those who maybe were morally good people, but they opposed the truth of God. They believed what was not true. They gave appreciation to what God never taught. God said the false prophets will be cast into that same place the devil is. Not only that, description is given about the beasts. Those beasts take us back to chapter 13 in Revelation, where the description is given of two rather fearsome and ferocious beasts. May we say, one of them had to do with false religion. One of them had to do with the nature of false living. You and I can't hope to go to heaven by living falsely. Our only hope, of course, is to recognize the truth of God in its fullness and to be happily and submissively obedient to it. That book of Revelation takes us back to the lesson text that Brother Joe read earlier. You remember the scene, and it's a very challenging one. In Revelation 6, we find one by one those seals are loosed from that book. There was a book in the right hand of God. It was sealed seven times. And yet, as those seals one by one were loosed, we come to the sixth seal, seal number six. As that seal is loosed, the time in it comes, the rocks and those other things around it, there are people crying, fall on us. Save us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come. And who shall be able to stand? question. Who will be able to stand? On the day of judgment, who will be the ones left standing in the proverbial sense? Once the debris of that day is cleared, the verdicts and the sentences have all been presented, who will be left standing? Only the Christians of our day. Only those who in fact are not going to be the ones suffering the wrath of God poured forth upon them. The great day of His wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? As you go forward with me to the bottom, you and I are in a position to appreciate God's anger. An anger that's so strong, directed toward those that are guilty of sin. How important it is then to live in holiness, in uprightness, in faithfulness. It's so easy, isn't it, when we're gathered in assemblies like this one and we're singing and we're praying and we're reflecting upon the Word of God that it's easy to think about holiness and goodness. Let me ask about tomorrow or maybe Thursday of this week. There we're at work or we're in some other location. Maybe it's awfully tempting for you and me to forget about God's anger at sin and to revert back to thinking it's not such a big deal. It is a big deal. Every day you and I need to live a dedicated life. Don't we read in Luke 9, 23? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. At that point, as we come to one of the last sections or comments of our lesson this morning, God's anger is always properly directed You see, God never does what's sinful. He never opposes His own will. And hence, if He directs in wrath anger to some, that anger is justified in the actions that come with it. Holy, holy, holy. 
Lord God Almighty. That text of Revelation 4 verse number 8 brings a final set of challenges or admonitions that the Bible would present to you and me today. We've learned to this point, God gets very angry at sin. And in that final day, He's going to pour out His wrath upon those who, of course, are guilty of it. So you and me, we need to do this. We need to seek to develop in ourselves the same attitude towards sin that God has. I need to learn to hate it. And you need to learn to hate it. And I need to learn to keep myself distanced from it and to channel my thoughts and actions of life. Directed them always to the will of God. That's a constant challenge without question. Then the devil will find opportunities to challenge you and me, to cause us in a moment of weakness. But may you and I never lose sight of trying to appreciate it the way that God does. God always does what's right. His justice, again, is a justified thing. We read, we read, of course, in Genesis 18 about that passage, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Even at the day of judgment, what he does will be right. That's a day that I'm sure each of us have thought about. Can you imagine the multiplied billions of people gathered on one occasion for judgment? As you and I consider the way it will happen, again, only few will be saved. We know that. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. So out of the vast majority that are going to be lost, God's anger will be poured forth upon them. And you can imagine the sentence, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Matthew 7, 23. And yet that sentence will be a just one. God's anger for all eternity is going to rage against those who oppose the will of Him and His Son. Surely, as we close this slide, may you and I never, ever forget God's anger at sin. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 10.31. And we appreciate that inasmuch as He is a consuming fire, we are admonished to always live in humble submission and fear of Him. Isn't the whole duty of man this? Fear God and keep His commandments. Ecclesiastes 12.13 One final thought and the lesson is yours. As we've discussed and highlighted God's anger at sin, it reminds us then we must obey the gospel. Paul said it like this in 2 Thessalonians 1. To you who are troubled, rest with us. Notice, some who would otherwise be troubled, he said, you can have rest. How so? You who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. There's great comfort for those who do obey the gospel and who live faithful to it. Today, in the sound of my voice, there may be one or more who finds your life not as it ought to be. You don't want to be an enemy to God, do you? You don't want to continue living in such a way that you oppose the greatness of the will of heaven. God's anger, of course, will be directed eternally your way if you allow that to continue. Today, the plan of salvation 
the very one that died on the cross, said, this is what you need to do in order to be free from sin. You must believe in me. With all your heart, John 8, 24, you must repent of your sins, Acts 2, 38. You must confess my name, Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, and you must be baptized, Mark 16, 16. If you do that, you'll be added to the church. I'll wash your sins away. And if you live faithfully till death, the crown of life is yours, Revelation 2.10. If, on the other hand, you have begun that walk with Him, but you have failed, and you've done so in a public way, and you have begun to live a habitual life of sin, come back to the faithful side of the Master. He wants you to come back. He invites you to come back. He implores you to come back. But He does leave the decision to you and me. If you have public sin in your life, and you wish to make that right, you need to, of course, confess it and repent of it. And if you do that, beseeching prayers of faithful brethren to God on your behalf, God will forgive it. Today, if we could be of assistance to anyone in the audience, may you and I leave today remembering God's anger at sin. If we can help you at this moment in your response, why not come while together we stand and while we sing?